So in our last time we were together here in Matthew Church, we began looking at Jesus' more specific teachings on topics in this Sermon on the Mount. And as we talked about here in chapter 5, Jesus gives specific teachings on six topics. Six topics. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies. And for each of those, remember, right before all of this, Jesus talked about how he hasn't come to totally abolish the Old Testament, but he has come to fulfill the Old Testament in his life, death, and resurrection, and in his teachings. And that's then why, for each of these topics, Jesus is going to take something from the Old Testament, and what he does is he shows us what it was always meant to point to. He revealed what God was always getting at for us. And if you remember, Jesus did this last time we were here in Matthew with the commands to not murder and to not commit adultery. Because for both of those, what Jesus did was he showed us that these commands aren't merely or mainly external, but they're radically internal. Meaning the command to not commit murder is fulfilled and followed as we as Jesus' people seek to avoid sinful anger. And then seek to make peace. And the command to not commit adultery is fulfilled and truly followed when we are people who don't lust after and use others, but genuinely love others. And so that was the first two topics that Jesus addresses here in Matthew chapter 5, which now brings us, though, to this week. Where we'll see Jesus teach in a similar way about two more topics, the topics of divorce and oaths. Divorce and oaths. And we, and we group these two topics together, not just because we want to cover two in one Sunday, but rather we do them together because I think they're intentionally grouped together by Jesus and, and why he's talking about them. Because remember, as we talked about last time we were here in Matthew, remember, anger and lust are easily grouped together because they're both internal passions. And they're both things where it, we saw that they mainly just thought they were external. But again, Jesus said they were internal. And so that's how those two topics were connected. But then what about divorce and oaths? Well, to begin, to begin, it does need to be said that divorce makes sense coming after lust. And so Jesus' transition here fits. But why do we group divorce and oaths together? And, and the reason is, what well, we'll think about it. Both marriage and the breaking of marriage and divorce and oaths and the breaking of oaths they both mainly have to do with promises we make, with commitments we're to keep, and with essentially fulfilling our word or not. That's the main thing that links these two together. And not only that, but we especially, I think, know that these are connected. Because as we'll see, the background reason for why Jesus is even addressing these topics back then here is because for people back then, and honestly still for a lot of us today... Both marriages, marriage and promises or oaths were things that they could not only enter into, but then there were things that people often can think they can get ways out of. They can contrive reasons to get out of. Both marriage and oaths were areas where people would make promises, but then over time they'd try to essentially just get out of their promises, whether by divorce or by cleverly devised oaths. And therefore, all of that said, it's in that context that Jesus, our King, enters the scene talking to them and talking to us, church, and fulfilling up the teachings of the Old Testament. He basically says, you've got it all wrong if you think so lightly 
about your word, your promises, your commitments. Because the promises you make and what you say really does matter. And therefore, Jesus' overarching point is that his followers should be people who keep their promises. That's really Jesus' overarching point. And on that, just briefly as we begin here this morning, I do think it's important for all of us to understand that that's Jesus' overarching point here in both of these passages. We need to see that Jesus is fundamentally showing us the importance and the seriousness and the beauty of following through on what we say and what we promise. And I think we need to stress that as we begin because let's be honest. Especially concerning this first topic coming up on divorce, since it's unfortunately so common in our broken world, right, these, are, these are difficult topics. And when we hear what Jesus is about to say about these topics, we might be even more surprised and find it even more difficult. And yet, before we get into the more specific trees, if you will, of what Jesus says here, we don't want to lose the forest. Because yes, it is true. That as we'll see, Jesus is pretty radical here about his teaching on divorce. And we'll go over what he says and why. But also in all that, we need to remember, church, that this is, this is our king. This is the son of God and God himself on the scene. And, and being God, he does know what's best for us. He, know, he knows not only what's right, but he knows what's good and beautiful for us in our world as well. And I know hearing that concerning some of the things he's about to say to us, especially again about divorce, we might be prone to think, but this, this sounds really hard. It doesn't sound good or beautiful. And yeah, I, I do think that's because honestly, when we, and even we as Christians, when, when we begin to think about this topic of divorce, what we can immediately do is we jump to thinking, when is divorce permissible though? Right? That's often our main concern when we approach this topic in the Bible. And there is a whole other passage, just so you know, in Matthew chapter 19, which we won't get into this morning, when the Jews in Jesus' day asked him basically the same question we wonder about. They asked him, when is divorce permissible? And there, Jesus does give them a more detailed answer. And for us, in our passage, it is true that Jesus will, in a quick phrase, talk about when divorce is permissible here. But that all said, just just hear me out. That's not Jesus' main point in bringing this all up. Instead, what is Jesus' main point? Well, again, it's for those who follow him in his kingdom. He wants us to see that our words and what we say and what we commit to and promise really matters. Marriage really matters. Our promises matter. And therefore, what is clearly ideal and what we should strive for, simply said, is that we keep our promises. And that others we interact with in Jesus' kingdom keep their promises as well. And again, as we begin, I just wanted us to really understand that that's Jesus' main point here. Because, again, this topic of divorce is famously one that people love to dissect and even disagree about. Especially because it's so close to so many of our daily lives. But when it does come to the overall point that Jesus is making here, what is amazing is that basically everyone on earth agrees with it. That yes, we should keep our promises. And even more so that yes, it is a beautiful thing when others keep their promises to us. And so all that said, that then means, really, I do think that although this is a debated topic, yet in essence, all of us actually agree with the main premise of both of these paragraphs from Jesus here. 
Made in God's image, we all know this. We know that marriage is a promise, one of the greatest promises in the world, and it's a beautiful thing when we keep that promise. And, and so in summary then, that's why our king here at church, as he's talking about his kingdom, in love he wants to address this. <laughs> because the truth is, we know this deep in our bones, and yet we as broken people in a fallen world, we can now downplay this. And so the point is, if there's anything in us, as Jesus' followers that make us want to downplay our words and promises or, or dishonor marriage, Jesus here loves us and he wants to make it plain that that's not the way of his kingdom. Instead, in his kingdom, marriage matters, promises matter, all because this isn't just about what's right, but it's also about what's good and beautiful and the way God, our king, always intended things to be. Anyway, so, so that's just a long introduction to our text and these two topics this morning. But that all finally brings us to our outline for how we'll go through what Jesus actually says here to us together. And so very simply, as for an outline, since we have two paragraphs and topics to cover this morning, we'll simply have two sections together to go through it all. Two sections. And as for what they are, first, we will look at what Jesus has to say to us about divorce and marriage. And then second, we'll see what Jesus has to say about oaths and how they apply to the promises we make in our daily lives. It's that simple. First, divorce and marriage. And second, oaths and promises we make in our daily lives. All with the goal, church, as always, of hearing from Jesus. Because remember, brothers and sisters, this is the same Jesus we're about to hear from, who from here on out in Matthew is about to go to the cross to suffer and die and rise for us. And so I just encourage you, remember in all of us that Jesus really does love us, church. Jesus really does love you. And we always need to remember that. And so knowing that, let's just now hear what he has to say. So all that said, let's then begin our first topic this morning. And for this, we'll be in just verses 31 and 32. And we'll see Jesus talk to us about divorce and marriage. Divorce and marriage. And it is somewhat important as we begin to see that Jesus is not just talking about divorce here, but also about marriage. Because in these verses, we won't actually mainly see Jesus' view on divorce as much as we'll see him teach us what he thinks marriage really is. And you'll see what I mean by that as we go. But anyway, so now to go through this, let's just take what Jesus says here in two steps. The first verse in the background, and then second, Jesus' response. And so first, church, now just look down at verse 31 for the background on all this. Jesus is continuing teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So on this verse, notice what Jesus does here is he semi-quotes something from the Old Testament about divorce. And I say it that way that he semi-quotes because what Jesus does here is he only quotes sort of a paraphrase of an Old Testament verse. And the only part he somewhat quotes is whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And that's interesting because that means, notice, Jesus doesn't therefore quote the Old Testament about when divorce is permissible here. Instead, the portion he semi-quotes is simply about Whoever divorces someone, this is how you do it. And this matters because for the people back then, as a little background on all of this, just so you know, for them, it was a very hotly debated topic between the rabbis when divorce was permissible. 
And that's because in Deuteronomy 24, which Jesus is semi-quoting here, the Old Testament law did say that if a husband found, quote, some indecency in his wife, then there could be a divorce. And in brief, on that phrase, back then there was a huge debate, famously among these two school of rabbis, about what that some indecency meant. Because on the one hand, there was a school following the rabbi Shammai, and they were more strict, interpreting some indecency as only referring to outward, big, gross indecencies. While on the other hand, the school following the rabbi Hillel, they famously thought that some indecency basically meant anything a husband didn't like in his wife. And this school famously said something like a burnt dinner could qualify as some indecency and therefore be a reason for divorce. And so that's the historical background here that Jesus is talking about this. And as we said earlier, remember, the Jews are going to bring this up again to Jesus in Matthew 19. But all that said, once again, here though, just notice that Jesus, as he's teaching on this, he actually decides not to quote the Old Testament part about indecency. Meaning Jesus isn't wanting us to focus on when necessarily divorce is permissible. Rather, what does he focus on? Well, notice in what he quotes, he mainly just focuses on divorce happening in general. Which is why his quote starts with, whoever divorces. All right, so that's the background here. Which finally, church, leads us to what Jesus has to say in verse 32. And as you hear this, let's be honest, this is going to be tough in some ways to hear, but we will break down what it means and why Jesus says it. So look down now. Our Lord and Savior responds like this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So again, Jesus uses his but I say to you phrase. And what, what does he say to us? Well, we can break down what he says there into three statements. Three statements. And you can basically see these in the three clauses that Jesus says. Three statements. First, Jesus says that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, which we'll get to later. But taking that out for a second, Jesus says that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Let me say that again. This is Jesus' words, not mine. Jesus says, quote, Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. And now, how could or why would Jesus say that? Why would he bring adultery into all of this? And, and, And why does divorcing someone make them commit adultery? Well, first, remember, we just were taught by Jesus in the previous paragraph about how adultery is much bigger than merely sleeping with somebody. And so we should all know by now, as we hear Jesus here, that adultery isn't as simple as we think. But even more so, thinking about how and why Jesus would say this, think about it. Why would a man divorcing his wife make her commit adultery? And the reason is, it's because Jesus therefore is assuming here and he's teaching here that marriage really is a lifelong commitment. That marriage really is a lifelong thing. And we know that he has that in mind because, again, it's not the person filing for divorce that commits the adultery here, but Jesus says that he makes her commit adultery. And why is that? Well, it's because it's assumed that she's going to remarry. And this was especially the case back then as most women were remarried in their society. And so why would divorcing her cause her to commit adultery? 
And the answer is, it's because Jesus is therefore assuming, and he's teaching, that if you divorce her without God-given reasons, then your marriage is still intact with her in a way in God's eyes. And so when she remarries, you are forcing her to commit adultery. And now, what that all means for us and how to apply that to us, we will get into that in a few minutes. But for now, just see it for yourself, church. That is the first statement that Jesus makes. Which leads to the second statement, which is a statement he makes in that clause, except on the ground of sexual morality. Now, we could spend a long time on that, but in short, this then shows us that Jesus, in this context where he's emphasizing marriage and the lifelong permanence of marriage and the importance of what we say and promise, yet Jesus does teach here that there are times when lifelong intended marriage can actually, in God's eyes, be released or unbound. And therefore, the idea is if that's what happens, then this whole idea of making another commit adultery wouldn't be the case. Because the marriage boundedness would legitimately be dissolved. And again, remember, Jesus will address this more in Matthew 19. But in short, we do see here clearly then that sexual infidelity is a permissible ground for divorce. Not that you have to, but that you could. And, just so you know, also from other places in the Bible, we have good reason to know that sexual morality isn't the only ground when divorce can be permissible in God's eyes because we have, for example, Paul, the Apostle Paul, adding desertion or when a spouse literally leaves another spouse in 1 Corinthians 7 as another reason. And finally, I, following other theologians on this, would include abuse as well to the list due to 1 Corinthians 7. And so all that said, Jesus here does point us to the fact that there are situations where a legitimate unbounding can happen. And yet, for us, we do need to note, church, that those are the exceptions which break what marriage in essence is, if you will. Because in God's word, those three are really the only legitimate reasons to end a marriage. And therefore, again, unless those happened, it's assumed by by Jesus, our Savior here, that marriage is a God-ordained, lifelong commitment between two people as long as they both are alive. Which all finally leads us to the third and last statement Jesus makes here. And this is his last clause where he really clarifies his point. And again, these are Jesus' words, not mine. And just notice what Jesus says to end the verse. Quote, And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so this now shows us that we're really on the right track in interpreting Jesus here. Because again, this only makes sense if marriage according to Jesus is a lifelong commitment. And it is. And that's why first when someone divorces a woman and they remarry, he forces her to commit adultery. And it's why, as Jesus says, if someone marries someone who has been divorced... And that person's divorce wasn't for God-ordained reasons. Then Jesus says the one marrying her commits adultery. Because in a sense, the person they're marrying never legitimately ended their first marriage. And again, I know that's tough. And maybe strict sounding, but read it for yourself. That's really the only way to read Jesus, what our Lord and Savior says here. And so that's what Jesus teaches. Which now brings us to ask... Okay, so that's what Jesus says, but what are we to do with all this? (laughs) What are we to do? What should we take away, and how should we apply all of that to us? 
And I, and I especially want us to, to slow down now and really ask this, because while it is true for all of us that these, these six topics here in Matthew 5, they all apply so much to our lives, yet still, the reality is, especially this one, since divorce is so common and such a tough and heartbreaking thing, right, especially here, we, we really want to know how to apply this correctly. And so again, what do we do with all of this? And in answer to that, we, of course, could spend a whole message, a series of messages on this from all over the Bible. And so please, don't take what we're about to say as all that God's word has to say about this topic. But still, from what Jesus says here, here are three things we should all take away from this. Three takeaways and answer to what in the world do we do with all of this. Number one, we should all acknowledge and agree with the foundation of what Jesus is getting at here. And that's, again, that Jesus is making the point that our promises and commitments really do matter, especially in marriage, and that marriage itself, in God's eyes, is and it always has been a lifelong commitment. A lifelong commitment. Or more technically, it's a commitment that is binding as, both, as long as both partners are still alive. We need to know that. We need to feel that. And again, we may hear that and think it is difficult, and in many ways, it is. But also, I think we all know deep down in our bones that that actually does make sense. And it is beautiful that that is true. Because think about it, we all in this room deep down know the beauty, for example, of two, two people who have been together for decades and decades and yet still genuinely love and are for one another. And although that might be rare and really difficult to achieve in our brokenness and sin, it still does prove deep down that we know what Jesus is basically teaching here. And that's that marriage is a lifelong promise and commitment. And so that's the first takeaway, that we acknowledge and agree with Jesus Christ's stance on that. Which then leads to takeaway number two. And this, number two, is that although that's true about marriage, yet even from Jesus here and from God's word elsewhere, because of brokenness and sin in our hearts and in our world, there are legitimate situations now where that lifelong marriage bond can be unbound. And those grounds are sexual infidelity, desertion, and I would include abuse. And really, those are the only God-ordained grounds in his word. And on those, to be really clear, we need to know that if a marriage is dissolved in those ways, then as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, quote, in such cases, the brother or sister is not bound. And just so you know, that's why I keep using the terminology of unbound. Because what that means is if a marriage is ended on those grounds, then the lifelong marriage bond is actually unbound and legitimately so in God's eyes. And so that's the second thing, which leads finally to the third takeaway. And this is where I just want to now make it most personal for each of us in this room. Because this takeaway is now just asking, okay, what about me personally then? Or how do I personally take this? And as for this takeaway, it matters where we are in our lives. Because first, concerning us who are married, obviously we should take what Jesus says here as him teaching us about the permanence and beauty of our marriages. We need to make it personal. And so we should believe that and live in light of that. If you are married, cultivate that marriage as is a precious, lifelong relationship you are in. But then second, for those of you here who are not married, still what Jesus says to you does apply here and how you should hear this and agree with Jesus here and uphold marriage still is a beautiful thing in our world. Because it is. 
Right? And those takeaways are probably a little more obvious. But maybe the biggest question on all of this is, okay, but, but, but what about for those of you in here who have been divorced? All right, and if that's you, okay, what, what should you do with Jesus' teaching here? And well, in answer to that, taking everything Jesus says here, the application is first, it is first to acknowledge and realize that any divorce, apart from legitimate God-given grounds, and it was not the way that God intended it to be in that divorce, and it, and it was sin. And specifically, divorce and remarriage, apart from legitimate God-given grounds, did result in adultery. It did. But that's just what Jesus says. And again, I know that's tough, but, but I don't want to soften that, because my main goal here, brothers and sisters, on Sundays is to explain God's word as clearly as possible, and that is exactly what Jesus says. And to be clear, adultery like that is a big deal. And also, though, as you hear that, if that's you, just remember, every single person in this room is basically an adulterer too, though. <laughs> because remember, verse 28, in the last paragraph, right before Jesus said this, Jesus just made the point that all lust is adultery as well. <laughs> and so Jesus' teaching here on divorce is meant to be clear and striking if you've been divorced without legitimate grounds, or if you're considering it, or if you think loosely about marriage and divorce. divorce. And though, let's all remember, Jesus' teaching here humbles all of us. And as we sang earlier, there is grace enough for any sin to be forgiven before the throne of God. But then finally... For the question some of you might have about divorce, if you've been divorced, it might finally, but what if I'm divorced and I'm remarried? Should I then go get back together with my original spouse since that marriage was always meant to be last a lifetime? And the question to that answer would be no. And why? Well, because long story short, just taking what Jesus says here, doing that would then cause you to illegitimately divorce your current spouse. Right, and so instead, the takeaway then for, for this, takeaway from this for anyone in here who's been divorced and remarried is simply from here on out, simply uphold the marriage you're in. Or if you're not in a marriage, remain faithful to the Lord and seek to follow what Jesus says. It's that simple. And really, that's how most Christians have taken what Jesus says here. Or to say it from someone besides me, in case it helps, one commentator I read this week put it this way. He said this, quote, There is no indication here that a second marriage, even following an illegitimate divorce, is seen as permanently adulterous. End quote. And, and I, I totally agree with that. And then the commentator adds this application, quote, Divorced Christians who have remarried should not commit the sin of a second divorce to try to resume relations with a previous spouse, but they should begin afresh to observe God's standards by remaining faithful to their current spouse. End quote. And I think that's the correct interpretation because, again, essentially what, all, what Jesus is calling all of us in his kingdom here to is to be people who honor marriage, who keep our promises, and who especially so love our spouses if we're married for God's glory until death do us part. And we do it all like Christ himself, who is the ultimate husband and who is so committed to us, his church, and he's faithful and he loves us. So that's our first section, church. And for all of us, 
Let's just remember, we don't do any of this in following Jesus because we need to obey him good enough to be okay with him or to be loved by God because that is not the gospel. But rather, this is our Savior and King and he loves us, he knows what's right and best for us and therefore, concerning marriage and divorce, now that we've all heard what he has to say, let's just make it our aim to follow him both for his glory and our good. So that's our first and longest section. Which now brings us more briefly to Jesus' next paragraph. And here, now we will see Jesus talk about oaths and how it applies to our daily words and promises. And we will take this section a little bit quicker, quicker because, to be honest, we don't really exactly do what was going on back then, as we'll talk about in a second. And yet, Jesus' overall point here still certainly does apply to us. And so with all that said, moving on now, let's begin with Jesus' first sentence here, and I'll give the background on all this in verse 33. Verse 33. So continuing on, Jesus says this, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So here, Jesus doesn't quote any one Old Testament verse, but he basically sums up or uses a quote that's summing up the Old Testament teaching on oaths. Because oaths in the Old Testament were more serious commitments that people would make where they swore by God to confirm what they said. And so Jesus is basically taking a quote that's summing up the Old Testament teaching on that, which is, well, if you swear by God you'll do something, then you should actually do it. Right? So that makes sense. And for us, hearing that, we'd probably assume that Jesus would just straight out agree with that. And yet, the reason he's about to say what he's going to say is because while that in idea might be right and good, yet what was going on back then is that people were taking oaths But they were doing it in this strangely, cleverly devised ways where instead of bringing God explicitly into the equation and swearing by God, they would say things like, I swear this by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem or toward Jerusalem and the list could go on. And what made that so crazy is that by doing that, they eventually developed this clever way to think that some oaths and promises they made were binding, while other oaths they thought they didn't really need to keep. And just as a quick and fascinating, even funny example of this, in this historical context back then, they said that if you swore by Jerusalem, then what you said wasn't binding. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, they said it was. And so that is the context of this messed up oath that Jesus is talking in, which leads him to say this. So now look at verses 34 through 36. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. We'll stop there for now. So, in response to their crazy system of oaths, Jesus basically says, look, if that's how you're taking oaths, don't take an oath at all. (laughs) Which we'll see in a minute what that actually means for us. But in response to all that they were doing, that's what he says. Stop taking oaths. And why? Well, in short, it's because he says, if you take an oath by heaven, that's that's God's throne anyway. (laughs) Or if you swear by the earth, that's God's footstool. Or if you swear by Jerusalem, that's where God's great king dwells. Or finally, if you swear by your head, you should realize you can't change the color of your head, but implied is that God can. 
Right? And taking all that together, you can see Jesus' overall point, especially to them back then, is that they may think that they're being clever by not literally saying, I swear by God, but God is always involved in what they say and promise. And he is for us as well. Which leads to Jesus' final point on this in verse 37. And here we see what he's really getting at in this paragraph. Verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So so here we see Jesus' point. And what is it? Well, for people in his kingdom, our yes should mean yes, and our no should mean no. And anything besides that, especially when we say one thing but know that we mean another... He says it comes from evil. It's messed up. It's not right. And and again, that makes sense. Because we all want our yeses and nos to be legit. And we want that from others as well. And so that's what Jesus teaches here, essentially, in this paragraph. Which now, all that said, leads us to bring this home. But to us, by asking first, okay, so does all this mean that we shouldn't take any sort of oath? Or sign any sort of official promise and only say the words yes and no in our commitments? And quickly, if you're more curious about this question, on our ECC website right now on the blog, about a year and a half ago now, I did write a more detailed response to this concern as some people back then in our church had issues or questions about our ECC membership agreement and commitment form. And so if you are more curious about this question, you can go on the website and you'll see a more detailed seven-page answer to this question. But in summary of an answer to this question of should we never take any oaths at all or sign any sort of promise document, it is true that some Christian traditions have taken Jesus that way. They are rare, but some Christian traditions have read Jesus here and therefore assumed they can never take any sort of oath, neither in court nor in the military or anything like that. And while that may sound commendable and correct at first, I, and and really most people who have studied the Bible, actually don't think that's the right interpretation or application of what Jesus is getting at here. And why? Well, in short, we're not led to believe that that's what Jesus actually meant. Because in the Bible, and even in the New Testament, first, God himself takes oaths. He swears by himself sometimes to confirm his promises. He does that in the Old Testament, and he even does that in the New Testament after the book of Matthew. And not only that, but then second, even in this book of Matthew, Jesus himself coming up in chapter 26, he's going to respond to Pilate while under oath. And there, Jesus doesn't say he can't respond under oath, but he simply responds. And then third and finally, the Apostle Paul, who surely knew Jesus' teaching here, he in Acts, and then also in his letters, he goes under oath sometimes, and he even swears by God in his writings to confirm his truthfulness. And so from God himself in the Bible to Jesus in the book of Matthew to the Apostle Paul in Acts and in the writings, it just doesn't seem that the right interpretation and application from Jesus is that we can never take or respond under oath. Instead, what's the application? Well, overall, it boils down to that last sentence here by Jesus. Meaning it's that as followers of Jesus in his kingdom, we should be people who when we speak to others, our yeses mean yes and our noes mean no. And that's why this section specifically was talking about their oath system back then. But when we boil it down, it's much more so just about our daily promises, right? And how we speak to one another. 
Because we all in this room say yes and no all the time. We use our words to basically commit to things every single day. And so the question is, are we people who say what we mean? Or, like the people back then, do we say things and we know that sometimes we don't really mean it? Because again, Jesus' point is, in his kingdom, we should be genuinely truthful people. That's it. We shouldn't say things we don't mean. We shouldn't be people who know that we don't intend to keep whatever we say. Instead, bring it all together now in the big things like marriage and in the smaller things like our daily interactions. When we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. And why? Well, because like in all of Jesus' teachings, it's because that's not only right, but again, living as a genuinely truthful person is the best and most beautiful and most loving way to live as well. And we all know that because that's how we want others to treat us. But not only that, but finally on this, we should be like this church because this really is like our God. Because God himself and whose image we are all made when he speaks and when he promises... He really does mean what he says. And he always follows through on his word. So that's our passage, church. That is Jesus' teaching on divorce and marriage and his teaching on oaths and how it applies to us keeping our word, which simply means for all of us now as we close, that once again, let's just remember, we don't do any of these things here to save ourselves, nor because if we don't do them good enough, Jesus will not accept us or love us. I just want to remind you the gospel is still true. We are secure and saved by grace through faith alone in what Jesus did. And I hope you know, we even continue to live our Christian lives by relying on Jesus. And so please don't hear any of this this morning and therefore subtly start believing the gospel isn't true because the gospel is true. We are saved by and we live by relying on Jesus. And yet, that said, what Jesus does in us by his spirit, once we know him and we trust him, is he enables us to more and more follow him. And that includes following him in his teachings on marriage and divorce and in the way we use our words. And so, brothers and sisters, simply said, let's, let's do that more. Let's follow Jesus more in what he said to us this morning. Let's honor our marriages because they are precious. Let's be faithful to our spouses if we are married to them and love them so much like Christ loves us. Let's mean what we say. Let's keep our promises and let's do it all so that we may live more like our king here. We may love others. We may shine forth his goodness into his world. Amen. Let's pray.